This is Officer McQuarn. We got a 1031. I got this! Officer Hawk, I am in pursuit! Woo! Woo! Uh, I need you to run a plate. Flash is the fastest guy in there. He can run the plate like that. Wait. They're all slots? Are you saying that because he's a sloth, he can't be fast? Flash, flash, 100-yard dash. Buddy, it's nice to see you. Nice to see you, hmm. too. Hmm. Officer Judy Hap, CPD, how are you? I am doing fine. Well, what Hang in there. can I do Well, I was hoping you could run a for you? Well, I was hoping you today. could... Well, I was hoping you could run a plate for us. We are in a really big hurry. What's the plate? Two nine T number. Two nine T H D zero three. Two nine T H D zero three. H D zero three. D. Mm -hmm. Zero. Three. Zero. Three! Hey, Flash, want to hear a joke? No! Sure. What do you call a three-humped camel? I don't know. Pregnant. <laughs> Priscilla. Oh, no! Yes? Flash? What <gasps> do no. you call a three-humped camel? Uh, pregnant! Okay, great, we got it! Please jump. Ah! Hurry, we gotta beat the rush hour in. It's night! Take a number. The line starts over there. Not until you're older. Your flight has been delayed. Your order will be here soon. It's not your turn yet. Your package will arrive in a couple of days. Just, just give it a second. It has to load. It has to buffer. It's got to wake up. There's always next year. Nebraska football fans say that a lot. You can't open your presents until Christmas. We've all been told, be prepared to wait. They say if you live to be 70 years old, you've spent three years of your life waiting. Some of y'all have waited a long time. <laughs> we do our best to avoid any taste of waiting, don't we? In fact, waiting has become sort of an indicator that something isn't quite working right, that there's probably something wrong, that maybe, maybe there is and maybe there isn't, but we don't have the patience to see if there's a problem or not, and we often assume that there is. Traffic isn't moving on the interstate. There has to be an accident or there's construction up ahead. There better be a good reason. 
My package didn't arrive on the day it was supposed to. Did the post office or did FedEx lose my package? My internet video isn't loading right. My Facebook page isn't loading fast enough. Is there something wrong with the Wi-Fi? Waiting. Waiting has become practically antithetical to the American ethos. Patience is a virtue, but a virtue we've seemingly forgotten in our culture. Everyone's in a hurry, including us. Stop wasting my time. Everyone's moving at the pace of a sloth. Time is money. Don't mince words. Get to the point. Every second counts. In fact, this disdain for waiting has seeped into how we talk to one another. I don't have the patience to listen to you, so I'm going to interrupt you mid-sentence. I can't wait that long. Waiting is such a powerful poison that it drastically alters our mood like anything else. The groans, the eye rolls, the pacing back and forth, checking the nearest clock, don't do that right now, but checking the nearest clock, human annoyance and irritation because of waiting is unrivaled, isn't it? I know, because I've been there. And if we're honest, we've sought to purge our lives of any forms of waiting, and in the process, we've started worshiping golden calves that offer us instant gratification and pleasure, haven't we? Free two-day shipping with an Amazon Prime membership. Subscribe to this streaming service to cut out all those pesky and intrusive commercials. Use the app and order ahead. Don't wait. This sale won't last forever. Just purchase this new toy or that luxury vehicle you can't afford forward right now on a credit card or a payment plan and save instead of saving up. Mortgage your future on a whim because it feels good. You want to lose weight without going to the gym or changing your eating habits and fast to try these dietary supplement pills that almost instantaneously make you look the way you want to. You want to appease those carnal urges immediately without any risk or consequence. Just look at this video or this picture or follow this link and enjoy yourselves No time for waiting has seeped into our culture. Is it because waiting usurps our place behind the wheel or the driver's seats of our lives? Waiting makes us passengers and observers, not necessarily full-fledged participants, it feels like, with the ebbs and flows of life. And as much as we try to be backseat drivers, we don't feel like we're accomplishing very much. And oftentimes, this frightens us, doesn't it? And so we try to insulate ourselves from tasting waiting. Waiting challenges our natural inclinations and impulses. It suffocates us, makes us feel trapped, makes us feel like we are not in control. It ignites our fight or flight instincts. And it often elicits questions that we otherwise might never have asked we're waiting until the end of the month when our paycheck rolls in. A bunch of unpaid bills and invoices are causing us to lose sleep at night. And so we ask, how am I going to get through this? As we're waiting to hear the doctor come, come back and talk to us about our diagnosis, our test results, our x-rays, or what have you, we begin asking, where is God 
in all of this. As we're waiting to talk to the mortician, or as we're clutching the tissue box waiting for the funeral service to begin, we often ask, what am I going to do next? I reckon God's people had quite a few questions as they were waiting. In 2 Kings 24-25, we find this interesting story. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon appears on the scene and is using big, our bigger army diplomacy and forcing the kingdom of Judah to become his vassal state. The residents of Judah could remain in their land, except by all intents and purposes, they were his possession and his property. Understandably, Judah's king, King Jehoiakim, doesn't like this arrangement and attempted to rebel against his Babylonian overlord. No pagan foreigner is going to tell this son of David what to do, let alone usurp his rightful place on the throne. But his coup failed, and predictably, this made King Nebuchadnezzar pretty upset. So upset, in fact, he personally escorted his armies to the doorsteps of Jerusalem and laid siege to the city with the intent of showing that such uprisings will not be tolerated under his watch. King Jehoiakim died during the siege, and his son, the new king, King Jehoiachin, along with his family and advisors, they all surrendered to King Nebuchadnezzar before anything worse can happen. But the king of Babylon was not satisfied. He wanted to send a message, a message of his dominance and power. He wanted to scare those Judeans straight. And so before Nebuchadnezzar left for home, he looted some souvenirs from the temple and the palace treasuries, stripped the gold plating off the walls of the temple and its furniture, and even carted off some of Jerusalem's finest warriors and craftsmen and artists, individuals including men named Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, leaving only the poorest and ill-equipped of people to populate the city. He took all this with them and returned to his home, leaving Jehoiachin's uncle Zedekiah on the throne as a sort of puppet king, presumably giving him more direct control and influence of Judah. But his plan backfired. Like his brother before him, Zedekiah revolted against his puppet master. But this time around, the Babylonians would not stand for this insurrection, and Nebuchadnezzar personally led his forces back to Jerusalem. And unlike the last time where the city and its inhabitants were mostly spared, this time around, the armies of Babylon were going to reduce the city to ashes. The soldiers demolished the city walls and melted the temple and the palace to ashes. King Zedekiah tried to flee, but he was captured. And for his treachery, Zedekiah suffered the worst humiliation imaginable as punishment. He was forced to witness the execution of his sons. He was then blinded, bound in bronze chains, and forced to walk nearly 900 miles to Babylon alongside the rest of the population of Judah living in Jerusalem, kicking off what we know as the Babylonian exile. And it's during this story that the prophet starts preaching. Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leader in the face with the rod. You can almost hear these stories, these events reverberating in what the prophet's saying. The chaos and the disruption and the heartache of war. The despair and anguish of one's world coming to an end before their very eyes as the sign of God's abiding presence, the holy city of God and its temple, they come crashing 
down and the human embodiment of God's protection is being publicly humiliated and defeated. Judah's king was the symbol and representative of God's protection and God's defenses defender is being tortured in public and full view of everyone. The king, the judge of Israel, God's hero, the one who was tasked to deliver God's people is now in need of deliverance himself and the enemies of God all but cackle with delight as the Davidic line has been humiliated and defeated and on the verge of extinction. The air is thick with hopelessness and uncertainty. The mood of the nation is doom and gloom. And it's at this lowest point in Israel's history that God reveals a part of his plan. When the people of God were on the verge of annihilation, when all hope seemed lost, God, through the prophet, chimes in an important word of hope. A Savior is coming. But you, O Bethlehem, for you shall come forth from me, one who is the ruler of Israel. God is already orchestrating that a new Davidic king would come and rescue God's people, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. His appearance is not sudden and spontaneous to what's happening in Israel. Rather, his rule has been destined from the start of God's plan from the world. And the prophet says he will stand. And he will never be struck down. He will never be struck on the cheek like Israel's recent rulers. He will never be humiliated or deported in shackles somewhere else. His reign will endure and his throne will be secure. His enemies will be made a footstool under his feet. And he will shepherd. In the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of his God, he will provide for the needs of his people, guide them in the right paths and protect them from all harm. And he will do so, not in his own strength, but by the strength given to him by God himself, manifesting and embodying the kingship of God himself. And the prophet says to be on the lookout because this new king is coming. In fact, what will end up happening is that everyone will be looking in the wrong place for him and his royal entrance will actually fly completely under the radar because the prophet says he's not coming from Jerusalem or that succession of flawed kings. He's not coming from there. He's not coming from Babylon or the place of the exile. He's coming from God himself and arriving where God originally started the monarchy in Israel Bethlehem. The next ruler is coming from Bethlehem. A royal reboot of sorts. And God's not trying to be cute. God's showing that he's doing the impossible, which is why everyone's looking in the wrong place when he eventually arrives. God is recreating the monarchy. The line of David, which was believed to be dead and extinct, God says he's going to resurrect it. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root preaches the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. While everyone's given up on that stump, God hasn't. God's going to go back to that birthplace, to the original stump. He's going back to Bethlehem and he's going to work a miracle and grow something from it. The prophets are saying that what the people are experiencing is not God's planned 
ending to their story. God promised there would always be a Davidic king on the throne, and God keeps his promises. But the prophet says there's going to be an interval between the announcement and his arrival. There's going to be an undisclosed amount of time between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, an intermission of sorts, and the story of what uh, that God is unfolding on the world stage. God is going to let the people of Israel suffer for a time at the hands of their enemies. Therefore, he shall give them up, the prophet says. Israel was guilty of violating the covenant obligations to God and needed to undergo a series of trials to purge them of their love affairs with other gods. But by God's grace, this time will be limited, far shorter than they deserve, and God's Messiah will come and go about doing the Lord's will, liberating his people from the forces of darkness and sin and ushering in his eternal kingdom. But until that time, God's people must endure the labor pains, the prophet says. Conception is the promise, delivery and birth, the fulfillment of that promise. And as many women in this room can probably attest, before the ecstasy of holding a newborn baby, before the joys of new life can happen, there is a time of intense tribulation and pain to bring about that euphoric sensation. Labor must come first, but birth is most certainly to follow. And so, my friends, the painstaking wait for Christmas began. 500 years of it. 500 years of anticipation and expectation. It would take about 500 years for these announcements of a Savior, of a Messiah from Bethlehem to come to fruition. And for those that are keeping score and doing the math, that's a long time. The prophet this morning is talking in the 6th century B.C. That's about the 500s B.C. That's 500 years before your history teacher started counting up instead of counting down when talking about time. 500 years before the one who is the fulfillment of these prophecies to be formed. 500 years of birth pains for God's people, of empires rising and falling, of God becoming seemingly silent and inactive on this issue, of a new generation of God's people replacing the old ones and holding on to this promise, of a stable in Bethlehem remaining inexplicably empty. 500 years of painstaking waiting for Christmas. But when the right time came, the Apostle Paul says. But when the right time came, God sent his son. One day, seemingly out of the blue, a man by the name of Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the new big bad Roman Empire, thought it would be a genius idea to audit his vast empire. And this forced a modest young couple in Palestine to leave their hometown in Galilee and wait for it and travel to Bethlehem. Because the husband had deep family roots there. And the journey from Galilee to Bethlehem was about 90 miles, or roughly four days of walking, made more difficult because the man's fiance was nine months pregnant at the time. She was told by an angel of the Lord that she would conceive and bear a son, that he'd be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord would give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel, his kingdom, forever. And so for 40 or so weeks, give or take, she waited as this divine infant grew and gestated inside her womb. 
Little did she realize, or maybe she knew, depending on who you ask, she and her husband were nearing the tail end of this period of waiting that began a long time ago. But does anyone find it fascinating that despite nearing the end of 500 years of waiting, God did not rush or hurry into Christmas? There's still a long pregnancy. There's still a long journey to Bethlehem. And once the couple even gets there to destination, they still have to wait because they can't find a suitable place to deliver the child except for an unassuming empty barn. But then the waiting is over. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. If you've been to any of our Bible studies, you know I'm a fan of the Bible Project. I highly recommend their resources. I recently watched this compelling and informative video surrounding this biblical concept of hope, where Tim Mackey, one of the uh, producers, talks about in the Old Testament, the Hebrews had two words for hope. Both words mean waiting or waiting for something under stress. In a way, the ancient Hebrews understood and talked about hope as waiting, as if hope and waiting were somehow interlaced or intertwined. To wait is to hope and vice versa. Hope is all about waiting with expectation. And here's the key reason why Tim Mackey says, biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see any situation, however the circumstances could work out the best for you. But biblical hope is not based on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there is no evidence that things will get better, but they choose to hope anyway. The psalmist says, and so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. The prophet proclaimed, I will wait for the Lord who has turned away from me. I will put my hope in him. For the people of faith, waiting is hoping in the person and the character of God. What if this is the key to waiting? The fuel to waiting is not looking and try to see our situation we're in and make the case that the glass is half full, which in the most cases it's not. What if it's resting in the assurance that God's going to one day overflow that glass because that's who he is and it's what he said he's going to do. And until then, we expectantly wait. Friends, I'm growing increasingly convinced that much of our Christian life is living in between the announcement and the fulfillment of God's promises. That the true test of our faith will not be in battling demons or in mountaintop experiences with God. I think they'll be in the normal, everyday rhythms of waiting. We'll be, they'll be in the waiting rooms of life. Whether you're there for a moment or a season or a lifetime, whether you're thrust perpetually from one waiting room to another incessantly, I believe it is in the crucible of the waiting rooms where our faith is tested, but also refined and strengthened and growed. And if you haven't found yourself there, or if you're not there already, I think you need to prepare yourself. Because waiting is hard. 
It's the realm of the discomfort and uncertainty and even anxiety, a place where we're given little to no control, a place that is as disorienting and suffocating, a place where our vision of the future is clouded and foggy, a place where the presence of God is felt less and more at a distance and the sound of his voice is often muffled, a place where we long for something to illuminate the dark, imponderable things in our lives, to untangle the riddles that we are not able to deal with. It's a place eerily resembling the valley of the shadow of death. But do we have the faith and the confidence to say in the waiting, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. I believe the season of Advent teaches us that something is happening in the waiting, in the longing, in the silence, that even nothing is indeed something. Advent reminds us that we can be confident, even hopeful, in waiting, anticipating the manifestation of God's redeeming work as we quietly continue to faithfully live amidst his perceived silence. Waiting is not a message the world will teach us. We are taught to take control and to act and to react, but it is often in the waiting that our true heart shows through. When we are left without instruction, without control, without knowledge of what comes next, we find ourselves melting down our gold to create a God that will fill that silence. Advent waiting is not simply a strategy. It's a way of life. If we enter into this kind of waiting, I believe it will change us. It changes the way we look at our present and our future. It leads us to believe that however life unfolds, God is a part of that unfolding. However we move forward, the good things that we're waiting for, God is involved in bringing about those good things. One of my favorite 20th century preachers, Helmut Tielix, once said, I believe that Christmas makes us feel so much at home, indeed not only as Christians, but even as the secular person, because the note of waiting strikes a familiar chord in all of our souls. But instead of loathing this waiting room, instead of cowering from it and running from it, instead of letting it poison our souls, what if instead we boldly entered in and learned how to somehow dwell there, to sit there. What would it look like for you? What would it look like for our community? Maybe there are things to learn about God and ourselves that we can only only be found in the waiting. And maybe when we try to rush to the fulfillment of God's promises, we actually short-circuit what God really wants for us. We miss what God wants us to experience by being at a different tempo than God. In a matter of moments, we will be partaking in the Lord's Supper, a meal that symbolizes God's ultimate display of faithfulness in the waiting, friends. In between Calvary and Joseph's tomb, the cosmos waited. It waited on bated breath as the Son of God lay dead and buried after being crucified and seemingly killed on a cross. And for three days, for what felt like an eternity, the forces of darkness maniacally laughed once again as it seemed that they had crushed the Davidic line, that they had humiliated and defeated and seemingly cut off it again. But God never flinched. God waited, perhaps painstakingly so, but God waited. 
And three days later, the Son of God rose again, defeating sin in the grave, humiliating the sting of death, and becoming what the Apostle Peter called our living hope. I invite you, in a matter of moments, to taste the faithfulness of God in the midst of the insufferable waiting. To remember that God did the impossible in the waiting. And we publicly proclaim that God is still capable of waiting. That as we still wait, our faith in the living person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the one who said, take heart because I've overcome the world. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This kind of waiting does not numb the pain nor always provide us answers, nor offer us a means to escape. If anything, it often looks around and recognizes that not everything is it should be or could be. And maybe you this morning, you're having a difficult time dealing with this atmosphere of good cheer and happiness this season because of what you or someone is personally waiting through. Sometimes during this time of year, we put on a happy face when inside we weep. Next Sunday evening, we're having this silent night service, an opportunity where we all can get together as a church family and lament and grieve together as we struggle through the waiting. But we do so with hope. We will acknowledge that evening our confidence in the living hope we have in Christ. And so please consider joining us that evening if you haven't. Because, friends, we don't have to wait alone or in isolation. And so while we may feel the pull to skip right to Christmas, right to fulfillment of the promise, I invite you right now to live in the intention of Advent. In fact, I think God wants us to experience Advent because Advent is the most akin to the ordinary Christian life than Christmas ever will be. And so though we will reverently revisit that old little town of Bethlehem, Advent reminds us that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in our living hope each and every day. And so, friends, we boldly wait.